us pray. Our Lord God, we've um, just heard sung to us so beautifully by the children, be still and know that you are God. And so uh, we take that instruction. We still our hearts and we pray that you would make our hearts soft to receive the seed of your word that our hearts will be good soil and that by your Holy Spirit, your word would do that which you have designed for it to do, that it would give us hearts of repentance and faith and joy in you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're turning now to the Bible. You'll find it uh, printed in our worship folder. It feels really warm in here. Is that right? Wow. Is, has anyone got an ability to open a window or throw a rock for a window or anything like that? Do we need to stretch? You can stretch. You're feeling like you're getting a little clammy. You can stretch your arms a little bit to feel a little less clammy. Um, but maybe there's a way to open a door. Uh, possible to open a door, ushers, or something like that, to get a little bit of air blowing through here. Is anyone who's feeling particularly diaconal? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Brilliant. We're, we're in sauna in here. <laughs> it's good for your health. Uh, but we're, we're getting there. HE's going to open another door or window or something like that. Thank you, brother. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Well, as I say, it's uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. If you, a gentleman, I'm going to say something that sounds like from the 1950s. Gentlemen, you may remove your jackets. Um, if you like. So Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, and you'll find it in the worship folder here. And the, the, uh, the topic, the theme this morning is, is the love of God. Now, when we think about love, uh, we inevitably, it's Valentine's uh, coming up fairly soon. This is a little free advertisement for you husbands out there. Just remember, Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, fiancés, fiancés, how do you pronounce the the male kind of fiancé. Uh, remember this, boyfriends. I haven't, I haven't done anything yet. So I'm reminding myself. When we think of love, we go inevitably to that kind of love, to romance. And now we're putting two words after the word love, love of God. And when we consider the love of God, there is a challenge and the challenge is the response or the retort, the comeback. So we say the love of God and the retort, the response, the challenge. You say, what could that possibly be? And the challenge or the response is, I think, prove it. <laughs> prove it. So let's just, you know, for instance, let's just be straightforward. You and I, let's be honest. The pulpit is no place for pretense, so let's be frank. What kind of world do we live in? Let's, let's, let's be honest. Here are some excerpts from this week in the news. We live in a world where babies are killed. It's the kind of world we live in. 
women and women and men are raped. Just some excerpts from the news without getting into detail, things I've scanned and seen. Jordanian fighter pilots are burnt alive by ISIS Islamic extremists. This is, this is the kind of world we, we live in. It's not all like that. There is certainly the beautiful as well. There are beautiful people. There are beautiful opportunities. There's beautiful restaurants. There are many things that are beautiful. But at the same time, life has this other part to it. Life is by turns barbaric and beautiful and then absurd. What is this about? And so down through human history, if we we scan through what has happened in human history. We have wrestled as, as a people, as a race, as humans, we have wrestled with the problem that there is the gorgeous and there is also, on the other hand, the gross. How do we, what kind of world do we live in? And so there have been different answers, just a little excerpts for you. Stoics, Stoics have said, man up, be strong, live strong. Stoics, ancient and modern, just got just got to be tough. Stoicism. Existentialists say, well, this life that we have doesn't in its own regard have meaning, but you've got to invest meaning in it, and so you've got to live large. You've got to, Sartre, Albert Camus, existentialists, you've got to, you've got to live large. You've got to invest in this life. You've got to eat, pray, love. Postmodernists, more recently, last decade or so, they said, well, actually, no there's, no, there's no real meaning in life. To try and invest meaning in life is a, is a mistake, and not only is it a mistake for people to say that there is an absolute truth, because there really is no absolute truth, to say that there is an absolute truth is actually a power move. It's a claim to construct some umbrella truth over other people in order to be able to dominate them, and so you don't want to do that. That's actually dictatorship, dictatorial. There is no truth, and to say that there is an absolute truth is just an excuse to try to dominate other people. No, they say just give up on that, trying to figure it out and construct meaning and absolute truth. Christians? Well, we had John chapter 3, verse 16 read out earlier in the service so well, and uh, it's so famous. It's the most well-known verse in the Bible. Danish Christians called it the little Bible. Christians then say about this world, what do they say? They say, God loves you. We have it on posters. We have it on bumper stickers. We have it on T-shirts. If you've ever come across a Christian, they'll be able to say to you, God loves you. And yet, really? You and I, just some excerpts from the world news this week. We live in a world where babies are killed, women and men are raped, Jordanian fighter pilots are burned alive by ISIS Islamic extremists. And you want to say God loves you? Really? Prove it. That's the response. And so, Paul, now in Romans 5, verses 7 to 8, does just that. For, he writes, 
One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This is the beginning of his argument here, from the lesser to the greater. I'll explain that in a moment. But, he says, God shows or demonstrates or proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means the following. We can prove God's uncommon, extraordinary, out of this world, God's uncommon love to us because the way He has loved us is beyond human analogy, beyond, above, beyond human analogy. That's my central idea, thesis, message for this morning. Let me repeat it for you. Everything's going to hang off this sentence. We can prove God's uncommon, extraordinary love. We can prove it. We can prove God's uncommon love to us because the way He has loved us Paul's saying, is beyond human analogy. Now, I'm going to show you that's what the Bible is saying here. I'll explain that, and then we'll apply it together. First, as we explain it, let me show you how this passage teaches. This passage teaches what I think it does teach here. It's important to understand the structure of Paul's argument from the lesser to the greater, and then how he uses analogy to prove that God's love is beyond analogy. Let me explain that. So, the structure of Paul's argument is from the lesser to the greater first. And the reason why that's important to see is because right here he says Christ died for sinners, and so we've got to understand what he means by sin, which is right here in this verse. And people today so often misunderstand what Christians actually believe by saying that we're sinners. People today, if you say to a friend at work, I think you're a sinner, if you say that, this is what they're going to think you're, you're meaning. They will think that We Christians believe that other people who are not Christians are sinners, whereas those who are religious in a Christian way are not sinners. That's what, in their heads, people think we mean. And the reason why they think we mean this is because they've come across forms of religion or teaching that have suggested that. And, you know, frankly, as a pastor, I've come across any number of people down through the years who've said something like this to me. They they say they come to a church service, and at the beginning it says, you know, come ye sinners, weak and broken. And I met with some people, and they said, look, just be honest about your failings. Tell me what's really going on. We're going to love you. And then I did. I'm looking for somewhere else. People misunderstand the Christian message in this regard. They misunderstand. What we're actually saying is that we are all sinners and we all need to repent. The the word sin in the Bible does not mean non-religious. The word sin means, Paul, Paul defines it, he says all have fallen short of the glory of God. That, that is all, all. So saying that someone is a sinner, well, it's like saying someone is a human. We're all humans, I think. We're all sinners. Some people are more human than others. Some people are more sinful than others. 
But the doctrine of sin in the Bible, the teaching of sin in the Bible, is a, is a diagnosis of the human condition. Think of it in, in that sort of medical way. It's beyond the medical uh, description, and I'll show you that in a moment. But think of it to begin with in a medical way. So a doctor comes into the room and says, well, you have some condition. You've got bursitis in your shoulder, and therefore such and such is the appropriate treatment. You need physical therapy. You need to do this, that, and the other. Jesus comes along and says, we've all sinned. (laughs) And therefore, the appropriate treatment is salvation. Now, I'm emphasizing this because Paul says here that Christ died for sinners. And unless we understand what he means here, we'll go completely off the wrong trajectory as we try and figure out what he's saying. What it means is that you and I are in a condition whereby no other solution is possible other than salvation. So to be a sinner means that a moral improvement project will not work. Again, medical. If my medical condition was minor, not that big a deal, then I could go on a more healthy diet, get more exercise, and I gradually get better. And all other religions, all other philosophies in the world say that that's what the human condition is like. It's relatively minor, not that big a deal. All we need is a moral improvement project, whether that is religious, philosophical, or moral. Five pillars of Islam, the way of the Buddha, sacrifice at the temple, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy and wealthy and wise. And if our human condition was minor, then any of those religious, moral, philosophical, poor Richard's almanac solutions would would work. But the Bible says we are Sinners, what that, all, all of us, what that means is we need saving, not a moral improvement project. Let me, let me I'll give you a medical illustration. Let me give you a different kind of illustration, same point. So if someone is, is drowning in a swimming pool, here's what you don't do. You don't put them in a swimming improvement class to improve their front crawl. You throw them a a life belt. Now you need that in mind to understand Paul's argument here from the lesser to the greater before we get to his analogy that shows that God's love is beyond human analogy. First the lesser to the greater. What he's saying is, as we look down, is that it's very unlikely even that someone would die for a righteous person. And there are different views on what Paul means here by using the term righteous. The different commentaries say different things. I joked at the 9.30 service that all three people have read those commentaries and I thought to myself, no, probably there are three people who have written the commentaries right there and given it's Scottish church. But I'm not going to get into all the detail. I'm just going to show you the most common view. It's the one I hold, and it is the most common one. The most common view is that Paul means someone who keeps the rules, perhaps in a slightly strict and narrow way, and is in that sense righteous. It's 
most common view. Then Paul says, well, though it's unlikely someone would die for someone like that, it's possible that someone might dare to die for what he calls a good person. Again, there are different views on what Paul means here by a good person in this place. The most common view, the one that I hold, is that Paul means someone who does not here just keep the rules, but has that quality of goodness, of beneficence, of kindness, of going above and beyond the call of duty, that kind of person that is therefore, in this sense, a good person. So this then is his argument from the lesser to the greater. You cannot imagine easily someone dying for the sort of person who just sticks to the rules and plays by the book all the time. But you could maybe, now greater, imagine someone dying for the sort of person who not only sticks to the rules but goes the extra mile, who goes above and beyond the call of duty. You can imagine that happening. There are people where we know such people who are really wonderful, good people who give their lives to other people. And you say to yourself, you know, I would follow that guy anywhere. A, a, a good person. I'd follow him anywhere. And there are stories, there are illustrations, even from the very violent uh, recent movie, American Sniper, stories of people who in war would die for their buddies. They give their lives for each other, for a good person. It, it's extraordinary. It's amazing. Occasionally, it happens. And today, people think that is what Christians believe about Jesus' death. They think, Christians, they think someone like me, a preacher, is saying that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. That's amazing. You know, there are people who take bullets for other people. A mother might well die for a son. A father might die for his son. And people think this is what we're saying about Jesus' death. It's not the lesser, it's the greater sacrifice. And you see, when it's preached like that, when we tell our friends about it like that, what it does, we use this lesser to the greater kind of way of explaining it, what it does is it promotes a response which is just like the kind of response that people make when they hear of someone who died for their country or for their family. It's amazing, it's moving, and it promotes that kind of response. But Christians do not merely believe that Jesus' death is the greater sacrifice. They believe that his death is beyond human analogy. Now, let me show you. Less is the greater now how he uses analogy to show that God's love for us is beyond human analogy. Now, let me show you that by some modern versions of Paul's way of arguing here. So, There is a person who's uh, pretty unlikely to die for a righteous person. And say that means someone who's merely playing by the rules, going by the book. Dying for that kind of person is unlikely to happen. It could happen, I suppose. Perhaps it has, but it's unlikely, Paul's saying. So, modern version. For instance, (laughs) this week in the news, (laughs) it was reported that uh, a, a, a school suspended... I think it's suspended, not expelled, but either way, suspended a child from school for playing a game pretending that he had Sauron's magic one ring to rule over them all. Apparently, he'd broken some rule. It was really in fine print. Now, you and I know people who are sticklers for the rules. They always, you know, it's there in the, in the little, little fine print. So, you feel like dying for someone like that? Probably not. Lesser. Greater. 
Okay, well, how about, again, a more recent example, more modern version, how about the book and the movie that came out of it called The Blind Side? It's a wonderful story. I enjoyed reading that book. The, The story is how one family adopted a kid from the hood, and this kid had all sorts of amazing abilities, gifts. He grew to a gargantuan size, a massive man, and They had to fight against discrimination, and he became one of the great offensive left tackle players to protect the blind side of the quarterback. So here's the story. There's a family. They adopt someone. They go beyond what is normal. They look after them. They promote them. They support them. Now, Paul says, can you imagine the person who's received all of that above and beyond the call of duty, kind of care, the greater care? Can you imagine someone being willing to die for that person, being willing to die for his adopted mom and dad, his, his parents? Can you imagine it, the way they loved him and the greater? Can you imagine that kind of greater sacrifice? It would be amazing, but it, it does happen. You, you can imagine someone being willing to die for their parents after they've been cared for like that. It happens. Now, What Paul is saying is that Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely and completely and utterly unlike that. But, he says, God... Contrasting, but God shows, proves, demonstrates, shows His love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You've got the Bible open, I hope you do, or you can find one under the pew, or you brought one with you. You'll see in verse 10, he underlines the point by saying, if while we were enemies, sinners, enemies, different ways of describing the human condition. That is... Being a sinner is not only a medical diagnosis, it is also an attitude of the human will. So being a sinner is not just a sickness, not just a moral disease, not just a medical condition. It is enemies. It is deliberate opposition to God, being an enemy. Now, talk about things that are misunderstood today. You go up to a friend at work or at school and you say, you know, I think you're an enemy of God. Here's what's going on in their head when we say that. They think, this is, this is what people think, they think Christians, preachers like me, they think Christians, we mean, those of us who are in Christ, they think we mean <laughs> that, you know, really great guy across the street who mows his grass, frankly, far more often than the Christian opposite. And is always, you know, kind enough to throw a really great block party every summer. He's an enemy of God, whereas the religious nutcases are better. That's what they think we're saying. But what Christians mean is that the human condition, the state of being a human, is that we are all naturally opposed to God, whether we do it in nice ways or nasty ways. 
I often use the illustration of renting a house to explain that. Let me, let me use that with us this morning. So some people, when they rent the house of their lives from God, the house of their lives from God, some people look after it well. They keep the place tidy, they clean up. On the other hand, some people mess up the house of their lives and trash the place. But naturally, none of us pay what is due to God in terms of allegiance, worship, adoration, or obedience. So, if you trash the house, or if you keep it nice, but either way, you refuse to pay rent, and in fact try to enforce action to take the house away from the rightful owner, it doesn't make one little bit of difference whether you take out the trash or not. In both cases, you are an enemy against the landlord. And when the landlord comes to claim what is rightfully his, Jesus uses a, a version of this kind of Uh, way of explaining it. He has a parable which is called the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. Jesus says, well, we oppose the rightful owner and we throw him out and even kill him if we could. Why? It's our house. It's not his. Our life. It's my money. I work for it, it's mine. It's my time, I've only got a certain amount of time, I'm going to use it how I want. My body, my mind, I'll put in it what I want. Not his, mine. And so whether we trash our minds, do drugs with our bodies, or... Go to art galleries and keep fit enough to run a mega maxi marathon every month. Either way, we are deliberately taking the house from the landlord. Our creator, God. And what Paul is saying, Is that for those people, Christ died. And because of that, he is saying, for, the start of the verses we're looking at, indicates he's continuing his argument about the love of God that he started in verse 5 of this chapter of Romans 4. On account of what follows now, because of that, God's love is proven. It is above and beyond not just the call of duty, not just the extraordinary stories of sacrifice that we know in our own culture and human history. It is something that he's saying is beyond, above human analogy. There is simply no instance that we can imagine or accord or consider where someone gave their life for people who hated them, were trying to kill them, were twisting their words and doubting their motives and attacking them and were their enemies. This has never happened except once.
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Praying for those who are killing him as, as he was dying right then to rescue them. You ever thought about that? And as we saw last week, we know that God loves us right now because he loved us right then. And actually, only once the Spirit of Christ in God's people, the church, get this, a prayer, Jesus' prayer echoed by who? By Stephen, the first Christian martyr, if you want to use that way of describing his life and death, gave his life for those attacking him, for his enemies, really for God's enemies, Prayer, his prayer, echoing Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Asking for their salvation as he is preaching to them the message that would save them if they would believe while they are killing him for preaching it. He's praying that they would be saved from the penalty of their rebellion. Now, watch this. A prayer gloriously answered. Have you ever thought how short Stephen's ministry was? What a brief time. His sermon, by the way, the amazing biblical theology. If you want to study biblical theology, study Stephen's sermon in Acts. What a short life. What, what a waste. His, his prayer gloriously answered as one young religious terrorist witnessed his death and gave approval to it, Luke tells us, holding the cloaks of those who rolled up their sleeves to stone Stephen, one young Saul, later called Paul. (laughs) I've often reflected on trying to match Paul's theology against Stephen's sermon and seen how closely they mesh. His life not wasted at all. Paul, who is now preaching this message around the globe, the message that he had understood as an enemy of God. There is no great apostle demonstration of the love of God than his son Jesus dying for his enemies. His enemies. So I wa- here's what I think then. This passage is teaching in summary. We can prove, not not maybe, prove God's uncommon love, extraordinary love, beyond what we can really conceptualize love. His uncommon love to us because the way He has loved us is beyond human analogy. Now we're going to apply this together. Before we do that, I've got, I've got sort of four applications that I mentioned in the previous services. I'm going to mention again. They're convicting for me, but I want them to be more than convicting. I want them to be encouraging. And for that to take place, I want to give you an illustration that will help land what I think Paul was saying here in all of our lives. Uh, it's a story about a woman who's a, 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 who I know, not in this uh, church, but in another church, She's now uh, retired. I got her permission to tell this story. I will not use her name. I'll change names if I need to use names so you won't know who it is. But I've got her permission to tell this story. This woman, now retired, mentored generations of women in a highly strategic church, encouraged generations of Bible teachers, men in the same highly strategic church. And in the middle of her life, her husband was diagnosed with a degenerative disease that would slowly kill him and has indeed in the last few years indeed slowly killed him. About a decade or more ago now, one of her two sons was also diagnosed with the same degenerative 
disease. One time she told me how she managed to get over the news that not only her husband but her son had been diagnosed. She was driving home from church one Sunday. She pulled over into a part of the, the lay-by, the side of the road where she could stop. Traffic going by, she just stopped there. She said she had to let God be God in her son's life. That was the, she said she was, she was talking to God. She usually says she talks to God rather than she prays. She's having a conversation, not, not a prayer, but she's talking to God. And it suddenly occurred to her that God God had a son too. That God was a parent. And that his son had died for her. That uh, story, that uh, description came back to me this week as I was studying this, that, you know, I'm, I'm a father, I've got two sons. The idea of giving my son for someone else. Just, but here this week, I've realized it's, it's, it's even more amazing. Not just for someone, but for someone else who is my enemy. Deliberately giving my son's life to save that, that person. It's just beyond human analogy. So here's what I would like. As your pastor... On the authority of God's word, I, I would like you, every time you, you read in the news, you see uh, in the news story, you come across some terrible thing or other in your own life, perhaps most challengingly, certainly most challengingly, I would like you, every time you see blood, disease, sin, rape, hate, violence, Petty gossip, depression. I would like, on the authority of God's word as your pastor, I would like you to hold up before your eyes the demonstration of the love of God beyond human analogy. We can prove God's uncommon love to us because the way He has loved us is beyond human analogy. Now, what does that mean in practice? Here are these four areas. They come with a diagnostic question. You can use them in small groups in your personal lives uh, this week. Uncommon humility. First of all, they're each going to have uncommon before the following word. Uncommon humility, uncommon sacrifice, uncommon security, uncommon worship, uncommon humility first. In other words, humility. If God loves us this much, it won't make us proud, will it, in this kind of way? It will give us uncommon humility. Here's the diagnostic question. Who do you consider you are better than? 
Bible says we're to consider others better than ourselves. Well, who do we consider we are better than? It's a diagnostic question to see how far we have progressed with uncommon humility. Second, who do you consider you're better than? Second, not just uncommon humility, uncommon sacrifice. If God loves us this much, it won't make us lazy. Oh, no. It will inspire us to risk to live full out for Jesus. He, he loved, God loves me this much. Uncommon sacrifice. Here's the diagnostic question. What, what is it that we, you and I, are not willing to give up for Jesus? Third, uncommon security. Because there's, okay, sacrifice, but security. So in other words, if God loves us this much, it, it, we're not insecure. We have a stable foundation and we're certain of where we're going and who we are in Christ. And therefore, we can live for him with full-out commitment, uncommon securities. Here's, here's the diagnostic question. What things or people that if I lost or were taken from me, that if you lost or were taken from you, what things or people, relationships, money, houses, ministries, what things or people that if I lost, if you lost, would shake our world? Because of this, we are not just sort of, you know, emotionally secure, we have a foundation. A sense of destiny, futures we'll look at next week. A rock-solid foundation if we've repented of our sins and put our trust in Christ. Finally, uncommon worship. So this isn't going to make us negative or like, oh, I'm, I'm. it's God is like this. It's going to lead to joyful exuberance at home, at work, at church. Now, I know, you know, there are people here who get up at four in the morning to travel downtown Chicago and work until eight, nine, ten at night, and squeezing time in is difficult. So let me put it like this. Could you this week spend five minutes thinking about, so I say thinking, I don't just mean rationalizing, I mean reflecting upon, meditating upon, thinking about five minutes, thinking, would you do this this week, five minutes thinking about nothing but Jesus. Five minutes. Four we can prove, not maybe, we can prove God's uncommon love to us because the way He loves us is beyond, the way He has loved us is beyond, it's beyond human analogy. Would you pray with me? We're going to sing, we're going to stand to sing in a moment in Christ alone. We've been thinking about Jesus together.
let's be still and know that he is God as the children instructed us. And now know what kind of God this is. His love is proven. It's beyond human analogy. Lord, would you help us, therefore, to live lives that are filled with a sense of confidence that we are, therefore, because we're in Christ alone, we have this love, and therefore to live lives. Uncommon humility, uncommon sacrifice, uncommon security, uncommon worship for you, Jesus. We pray in Christ alone. Amen.